Now to get a little more serious, I got an email this afternoon from Eager. Eager is one of the graduates at uh, uh, Jim Meyer School in Kiev. He just uh, finished his course of study in December and left to go to a village, I think it's his hometown, about 100 miles south of Kiev called Zhidomir. And he writes that his daughter, his young daughter, she's about a four or five months old, was sick with acute bronchitis. She's still sick, but they've taken her to the doctor, and she's, she's doing better. But she needs another a month on medication, and he asked for a special prayer for her and for the money they need for the uh, medication. And also, he says, I've tried to find a church that had some good doctrine. I've visited five churches, and not one of them teaches about eternal security. In one church, the pastor believes in security, but in eternal security, but the people do not. It's amazing. He said, every mo- Monday I visit a different home group, or I visit a home group. Basically, the, they are all students. They are studying 1 Corinthians, and they offered him the opportunity to teach. But that's not quite what he wants to do. So he is, uh, but he has had an opportunity to preach in one church. And uh, it's a good opportunity, he says, where he can preach some sound doctrine. And he also wants to start a ministry in, the hospi- in a hospital there. So he asked for prayer requests for health for his daughter Sophia and for uh, that they'll have the finances to afford her medication, that they can find a good church and help start a good church and start a ministry in the hospital. So we can just continue to pray for eager. Why don't we have a few moments of silent prayer? Well, before we get to that, we have a little calendar change issue. Now, you've got to bear with me. I have not done this before, but I got my calendar wrong. And uh, so everybody has to flex when I make a mistake. I am here next week. I go to Memphis the next week. So there will be Bible class Sunday night, Tuesday night, and Thursday night next week. It's the 22nd when I will not be here. So I just wrote it down completely wrong on my calendar and had to flex that. So uh, there will be Bible class next week on both Tuesday and Thursday night. All right, let's have a word of prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation to come together, to study your word, teach your word, to witness. Father, we pray that you would continue to provide those freedoms for us. We pray that you would continue to protect this nation from its enemies, to give wisdom and guidance to our president and to both civilian and military leadership. Father, tonight as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to focus and concentrate. God, the Holy Spirit, would make these things clear to us and that we would be responsive to his challenge to make these things applicable in our own lives and in our own thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Just returned this afternoon from Southern California, beautiful, cool Southern California. At least that's what it looked like outside the windows of the hotel. I was out there for a Chafer Seminary Governing Board meeting, which took place yesterday afternoon. We had a, we had a good meeting, meeting, and several good things are taking place with regard to the seminary, and uh, that went well. It was also good to be out there and spend a couple of hours in the sessions with the pastor's conference, and there was a good showing at the pastor's conference this year. A lot of new faces, younger men. Uh, the student body was there. From, uh, a number of students from Chafer Seminary were there. So that all went, went very, very well. It was a, just a great opportunity. Okay, we're in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. Open your Bibles, and we are getting into one of the most significant 
sentences in all of the New Testament. And one of, by the way, one of the most well-crafted sentences in all of the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. To remind you of the basic structure, since we covered it a couple of weeks ago, Hebrews is made up of five basic sections. It's like a five-point sermon. And in fact, I believe that's what it was, that it was originally an oral message that was taken down, perhaps by a, a, a writer or a secretary, and then it was cleaned up and then sent as a letter or sent as an epistle. And it has these five points. Each point has a section of doctrinal exposition or doctrinal development, followed by a, a section of exhortation, challenge, which in many cases contains or is synonymous with a warning. In the latter sections, it just contains a warning. And the basic themes, the key themes that we'll find in our study of Hebrews are woven in a masterful way into the opening sentence of Hebrews, which is contained in the first four verses that you have in your English Bible. Let me just... Uh, read through those. The thrust of the first four verses is the God who has spoken. The God who has spoken. And that carries the implication, a powerful implication that we'll see that's worked out in the epistle, that if God has spoken, then this carries a tremendous weight of accountability and responsibility to us to listen and respond with a, an implicit warning that there are serious consequences if we don't. And that's why there are these warning passages in the five sections of this book. It's the God who has spoken. The first verse reads in the New King James, and I haven't found an English translation I really like, but we'll stick with the English for a while until we exegete our way through. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, as you can tell, that is a loaded sentence. There are maybe 20 different doctrines that are touched on in this particular sentence, and we will touch on most of those, so we'll be in the first four verses for several weeks, but I don't want us to lose focus on what the writer's focus is, and that is that God has spoken. It is, it is said in such a way with aorist tense participles and aorist tense verbs that the grammar implies a finality to the revelation of God. That is something that is embedded in the grammar, as we will see. It's a fascinating sentence to read in the Greek, especially the first verse. I want you to listen to it. I'm going to read it in the Greek, but you ought to pick up on something. I want to see if you do. It reads, Palumeros kai palutropos palai hatheos lalesas tois patrasin in tois prophetes. There's about six P's there. It's great alliteration. This guy's an orator who's writing this, and he is constructing it in a masterful, uh, masterful way to catch the attention of his audience. Well, let's begin by doing some analysis of the grammar, to do a little exegesis before we get into the implications of the doctrine here. Actually, the key idea in the first verse revolves around the verb spoke. It's translated in the New King James as God, who at various times and in various ways spoke, making it seem as if the emphasis is on God as the subject of this verb spoke. 
However, you do not have what's referred to grammatically as a finite verb in the first verse. What you have is a participial phrase that is dependent upon the main verb, which doesn't come until the second verse. The second verse says that in these last days, God has spoken. That's your main clause. That is the subject of the sentence, God, of this whole sentence is God, and the verb is has spoken. So if you want to boil all of those verses down to the main idea, it's God has spoken in these last days by means of his son. Everything else that we're going to talk about is secondary in the mind of the writer. And that's an important thing to note because you have to emphasize what the writer emphasizes. And even though we go through various other elements in this sentence to make sure we understand it, when all is said and done and we've gone through doctrines related to uh, revelation and inspiration and canonicity and we've gone through doctrines related to the inheritance of the Son, the ascension of the Son, the session of the Son, when we deal with doctrines related to His substitutionary atonement on the cross, and all of this is included in this opening sentence, what the writer is emphasizing is that God has spoken. And the aorist tense indicates a finality to God's revelation in and through His Son. So the first key word that we have to look at in the Greek, it's not the first word in the Greek sentence, but it gives us that thrust, is the, the verb spoke, which is an aorist active participle of the verb laleo. And it means to speak. The aorist tense of a participle means that the action of the participle precedes the action of the main verb. And in this case, the participle is an arthrus, which means it is adverbial. And an adverbial participle can have various shades of meaning. And here it is a circumstantial participle of time. And it should be translated after God spoke. And the second verse then comes in with God has spoken. So that's the parallelism. After God spoke in times past... By the prophets, he, ha- he has spoken by his son. So the action in verse 1 precedes the action of his speaking in verse 2. The next thing we note is really the first word in the Greek text, and you have two adverbs that fit together in a, in a harmonious way, palumeros and palutropos, and they indicate the complexity of divine revelation in the Old Testament. The first word that we find in the Greek text is the word polymeros, which is an adverb of manner. And it should be translated in many ways or in many parts, or it could be translated fragments. And I think that's the best idea, is to translate with this fragmentary idea that the revelation given in the Old Testament was partial, as Paul uses the term, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's not complete. It's fragmentary. And so it's given a little here, a little there, a little more here, and the whole picture isn't seen even when the Old Testament is complete. That's why we have to have New Testament revelation and the New Testament canon to complete the whole picture. And with the closing of the New Testament canon, God's revelatory work is concluded. So this first adverb points to the fragmentary character of the revelations given in the Old Testament. Second adverb that's used is polytropos. Polytropos, it also is an adverb of manner, and it means in many ways, in many forms, in various manners. And it could imply the different geographical locations where Revelation took place in the Old Testament. You have uh, Daniel living in uh, Persia. You have, of course, Moses who's in Egypt and then comes up and, but never enters into the Promised Land. You have the Revelation given through the various prophets who are living in the Promised Land. You have revelation given through uh, Jeremiah, who at the end of his life is down in, in Egypt. So you have 
different geographical locations as the basis of divine revelation. But I think the main idea in the Word is to emphasize the various methods of disclosure. That's what revelation means, as we'll see, is to unveil or disclose something. And God used a variety of means. He spoke face-to-face with Moses. He spoke face-to-face with many others. With others, He appeared to them in a vision. In other instances, He appeared in a dream. But there are various different methods or forms that God used for communicating revelation in the Old Testament. So what we have is that after God spoke, or after God spoke at, in, various frag, in a variety of fragments and, a, and various forms in time past, and that is the adverb palai, P-A-L-A-I. It's an adverb of time, meaning formerly or of old time, and it describes something completed in the past. And here the idea is that the ancient teaching or revelation given in the Old Testament has, was completed. And that was definitely true. The Old Testament revelation, revelatory period came to a conclusion with God's last revelation to the Italian prophet, that last prophet in the, in the Old Testament, Malachi. Come on, wake up. Malachi, the last prophet, operated about 440 B.C. And in 440 B.C., the Old Testament canon was closed, and God was silent. God did not speak again, communicate again, reveal anything to man until he sent his angel to announce the pregnancy of Mary and to announce the pregnancy of Elizabeth with John the Baptist. That's the next time. So there's a 440-year period when God is silent, and there is no revelation of any kind taking place. There was a completion of that revelation. God has a purpose in revelation to communicate certain information to his people, and once that task is, is accomplished, then God ceases rev, the, that revelatory operation. He spoke, and the phrase that's translated, it, translated by the prophets translates the Greek phrase that's an end preposition, E-N, plus the dative of prophetes for prophet, and it's an instrumental dative indicating the means by which revelation was accomplished. It was through the prophets. That was the instrument that God used to communicate His truth. And He communicated it to the fathers. This would be the Jewish fathers. So right away there's an emphasis on a Jewish background that His readers would understand that He's not talking about ancient Greeks or ancient Romans, but to the Hebrew fathers. So here we have a corrected translation for verse 1. After God spoke long ago in various fragments and a variety of forms to the fathers by means of the prophets. See, I tried to get a little alliteration in there using the F sound just to try to imitate what the, what the original writer was doing. After God spoke long ago in various fragments and in a variety of forms to the fathers by means of the prophets... He has spoken, and that's the first verb in verse 2. It is an aorist active indicative indicating the main, that it is a main verb, and that's the main idea, that God has spoken to us by His Son. So if we compare verse 1 to verse 2, we see the main idea brought out. In verse 1, after God spoke to the fathers by means of the prophets, He spoke to us by means of His Son. You see the parallelism? We'll come through it again. That's where you find out how the Holy Spirit is emphasizing things. The emphasis is on that verbal communication from God indicated by the Greek verb laleo, L-A-L-E-O. God has spoken. Now, as soon as we get into this, we realize that we have to understand a few things about how God has spoken. 
How do we know when God has spoken? Are there criteria for understanding and validating God's speech? You know, people come along all the time and say, well, God told me to do such and so. I heard a voice. I saw a dream or heard a vision. How do you validate that it's the voice of God and not just somebody's opinion or self-justification or they're off their medication or they're schizophrenic or whatever it may be? They're just hearing voices. How do you know that it is the Word of God? Well, this is what we have to address tonight, looking at an introduction to the doctrine of revelation. Now, one other thing that we need to point out here. In the comparison of these two verses, what we see the writer doing is emphasizing the unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That it is the same God that revealed the Old Testament that has revealed the New Testament through His Son. So this builds a unity, a unified base between the Old and the New Testament. The second thing that we note here that's brought out in the first verse is that God used a fragmentary, various fragments to communicate and various forms in Israel's history. You could use the, think about the Old Testament prophets in an analogy, like hearing a clock gong. You walk into a house, you don't know what time it is, all of a sudden you start hearing it bong. Bong, bong, bong. You're trying to figure out what time it is. You don't know when the last bong is going to come. And that's what it was like all the way through the Old Testament. They just kept getting, they kept hearing those bongs. There was new revelation given in each century, in each era. And as they each century went by, they learned a little bit more about God's plan, God's purposes, God's redemptive plan. They, they learned more prophecies about the Messiah, and things came into focus. It was a fragmentary revelation, and as we'll see, it was a revelation that is, is progressive. It was incremental. It moved forward. They, that Moses knew more than Abraham knew. Abraham knew more than Noah knew. Noah knew more than Adam knew, because there is a progressive and increasing amount of revelation. Now, one of the couple of things or principles that I want to highlight before we get into, into talking about the doctrine of divine revelation, in light of this phrase, God has spoken, we ought to recognize that in many pagan religions, this is a profound statement. A friend of mine just returned from a few weeks of missionary activity teaching in India, and he said, I told him I was starting Hebrews, and he said, Robbie, Hebrews 1.1 is a profound statement in India because the gods of India don't speak. But the God of the Bible speaks. He has spoken. This is one of the most controversial uh, things that, and one of the things that, that unbelievers just hate and that pagans really hate is what the Bible claims that God has spoken. Because what's embedded here is the very idea that God has communicated. And if God has communicated, then what He has communicated must by its very nature be absolute truth. And that if God has communicated, then we are answerable and accountable for whatever it is that He has communicated. And to the unbeliever, this is just, this is highly offensive. They don't want that. They want to do everything in the, in the world that they can to suppress that truth and unrighteousness. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Romans 1, 18 through 20, that the uh, carnal mind wants to suppress the truth, and that means to hold it down, to cover it up, to reshape it in unrighteousness. Modern man hates the concept that God has spoken. The second thing we want to observe and come back to an analysis of, and that is that in places where the pagan gods have spoken, the way they speak is through mysticism. It's not, it is completely in contrast to the way the God of the Bible spoke historically. It is something that's private. It is non-verifiable. It's not objectifiable. It, there's no criteria. There's no truthfulness to it. It may be right on occasion, but it doesn't meet the same standards, the same criteria that the Scripture does. So there is a radical difference 
in the way God speaks and the way pagan gods communicate. Just think about it. There's a radical, categorical difference between the God of the Bible, who's the creator of the heavens and the earth and stands outside and apart from creation because he is the creator, and the other gods of all the other religions that are just the inventions of, of man, they're inside that circle. We, I drew that the other night, that what we have with creation is a bounded universe. And God exists outside as the creator. And man existing in here generates his own gods. And those gods are part of the universe. That's why you have the various nature gods, the fertility gods, the storm gods, the gods of war and love and lust and everything else that you find in the Greek pantheon and the Babylonian pantheon. But they're still inside the circle of creation. They're not totally distinct. And so the way they communicate to, to man, because man is just another part of that same chain. This is, this is referred to in philosophy as the chain of being. This really gets into some uh, high-end philosophy stuff that I'm not, I'm not going to get into that. Evolution is just part of that, and that is that everything in the universe is all part of the same scale of nature. That was the Aristotelian term, the scala natura, the scale of nature. And uh, if you're in that scale, you're all part of the same thing. This is essentially the basis for pantheism. And so if man's up here and God's just a little higher, what you have is not a God that is totally other, that is a creator God that is totally distinct from man. What you have is is a God that's just a a superman. He's sort of like uh, some one writer called it Mr. Mr. Man and Dr. God. God is just the next rung up in the scale, so He is of the same substance that we are, so we can participate in His being and receive these sort of internal intuitive flashes. This was what characterized all paganism. You go back to Babylonian paganism, um, you go to Assyrian paganism, Egyptian mythology, Greek mythology. The gods did not communicate in the same way that the God of the Bible communicated. So there is a radical, radical difference. And if we don't understand that, what happens when we talk about God communicating to us in in the way it often is today, we diminish the significance of God speaking in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And we water it down, we dilute the concept. So let's get into an introduction, a few points on an introduction to the doctrine of divine revelation. Introduction to the doctrine of divine revelation. First point, let's define what we mean by revelation. This isn't always clear to people. And people today don't think precisely about things. They don't have a good vocabulary. And you go and you listen to, to many pastors, you turn on the radio, and, and you listen to uh, talk shows, and words are used in very non-technical, fluid ways that are essentially confusing. So let's be precise. Point number one, let's define revelation. The word revelation is derived from the Greek word apokalupsis. Apokalupsis, which means a disclosure or an unveiling of something. Hence, revelation signifies God's unveiling of himself or disclosing to the mind of man information that God wants him to have. Man may be able to acquire that information. There's certainly historical information in the Old Testament that's revealed to man. So it's not, like it's not accessible, but God's going to interpret it for him. So revelation is a, it is a function of God. He's the subject of revelation. Man does not generate revelation. It comes from God. It's at God's discretion not man's. Second point, we have to distinguish revelation from certain other activities. This is where things get get a little fuzzy sometimes. One concept that we talk about is inspiration. Inspiration. Inspiration is the process whereby God oversaw the process of inscripturating or recording the disclosure. So revelation is a disclosure of information. Inspiration is a process of God overseeing the 
the recording of that information in Scripture and its preservation down through, through the years. So inspiration isn't the same thing as revelation. Third concept is illumination. Illumination. This is the process whereby God the Holy Spirit enables us to understand what has been revealed in the Scripture. The process whereby God the Holy Spirit helps us to understand what's been revealed in the Scripture. Now, this is where people get fuzzy in their verbiage and in their terminology. Somebody may say, well, you know, I was reading the Bible the other day and God just spoke to me. No, God didn't speak to you the same way He spoke to Adam, the same way He spoke to Noah, the same way He spoke to Abraham. The Holy Spirit illumined the Scripture, helped you to understand it, so that it had application and significance in your life at that instant. But He didn't speak to you in the way He did the Old Testament prophets or in the New Testament. There's a difference between illumination and Revelation. Passages related to illumination are 1 John 2.27, Luke 24.32 and 35, and 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10. And then another category is leading. God the Holy Spirit leads and directs us through nonverbal events as well as verbal events. It may be directly through Scripture, through the mandates and prohibitions in the Scripture, or it may be indirectly through uh, illumination, through the counsel of others, through the teaching of a pastor, or through circumstances. But when we say, if you come to church and I teach something and you go home and say, boy, God really spoke to me tonight. You have taken a, ver- a phrase that's used in a very precise way in Scripture, God spoke, and you have diluted it. Because God wasn't in here. If you turned on a tape recorder, you'd only hear my voice. You wouldn't hear God's voice. But when you hear that, see that phrase anywhere in the Old Testament that God spoke to Noah, if you were there with a the tape recorder, you would tape record the verbal, the audible voice of God. It was objective. This isn't something that's happening between the ears of Noah. And I'll demonstrate that. I, I don't think we'll get that far tonight, but we'll go through the Old Testament to, to show these examples. Third point. When we talk about divine revelation, there are really two categories of divine revelation. And the first is called general revelation. General revelation. And general revelation refers to nonverbal or nonspecific Revelation. This is what we find in a passage such as Psalm 19.1, that the heavens declare the glory of God. See, it's nonverbal. We can look at the heavens. We can look at the, we can look at the magnificent design in a flower. And that tells us something about the character of God, but it, we, we can't get very precise about it. It's a nonverbal communication. The Scriptures utilize this, for example, uh, in, in the Proverbs. In the Proverbs, uh, the, the um, Scripture says to study the ants. Now, there's a lot of things that you can learn about ants. Okay, and you could draw a lot of false conclusions from just studying ants. If you were to study an ant colony and how the ants interact with the uh, the queen and how the worker ants function. If you were to take everything you learned from that and apply it to human society, you could really get way off. You've got one dominant female and a bunch of submissive males. Now, now some of you might like that, but but see what the Bible does is it comes in and it says and it tells us how to interpret general revelation. It says look at the ant to see how it works, not to see how it function socially, not to see the relationship between the males and the females. It limits that. So the Bible, special revelation must come in order to define general revelation to help us understand it. Otherwise, we'd be lost. Adam and Eve in the garden could never have derived from general revelation the data that if they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, they would instantly die. That had to be communicated through special revelation. So that's the relationship between the two. General revelation is nonverbal, it's nonspecific, it's non-directive. There's no mandate there to do anything. There's no prohibitions in general revelation. 
General revelation must be interpreted through special revelation. But general revelation includes information about God, His magnificence, His power, His planning, His abilities. It includes information about man and and nature. And so man can come to learn a number of things through just studying nature. Sometimes this is called natural revelation. But due to sin, general revelation is continuously suppressed by the unbeliever. And see, is suppressing information about God. Now, just some scripture you can go to. Usually I put this up on the overhead, but tonight I want to move through this. Psalm 19, 1 through 6, Romans 1, 18 to 21, Matthew 5, 45. There's a general benevolence of God through, through good weather, rain, uh, things of that nature. The cycles of, of weather can be an instant of God's benevolence. Uh, all of this relates to general revelation. Then the next category is special revelation. Now, special revelation is it's recorded, it's preserved in the canon of Scripture, the rule or standard of Scripture. There's also non-recorded special revelation where God's, when God walked with Enoch back in Genesis chapter 5, there was a lot of special revelation to Enoch, but it's not recorded for posterity. So you have two categories of special revelation, that which is recorded and preserved in the canon and that which is not recorded. Information and special revelation is also about God, man, and nature. Now what distinguishes the two, general revelation and special revelation, is that general revelation comes out of nature. But special revelation comes from God's words. God speaks. God communicates information. Now, see, what happens is that the the liberal, who ultimately in liberal theology, you're operating on a form of paganism that, that always deteriorates into mysticism because it's coming from inside. They say at the root is rationalism. Rationalism says, okay, starting from the root ideas in my mind, I can logically come to an understanding of the nature of the universe, absolutes, the existence of God, the purpose of man. But when you can't get there and you finally get frustrated and skeptical, then what happens is you, you just say, oh, I've just got to leap there. I just, I just know it. I can't get there rationally, so I've got to get there irrationally. And so that's what, what happens in, in mysticism. Now, Special revelation logically is prior to general revelation is more important than general revelation. And special revelation is always needed to properly interpret and understand and utilize general revelation. This is why the data that you get from empirical studies, from science, from historical studies, study of man, psychology, must always come under the authority of Scripture. Because special revelation tells us how to interpret whatever is going on in nature. God informs us. That doesn't mean you can't derive a lot of true and beneficial things through empiricism and, and uh, rationalism. You can, and we have, and we do. But ultimately, it must be under the authority of God's Word. God's Word provides the boundaries. Now, a couple of passages on special revelation would be John 1.18, uh, John 6.36, John 14.10, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, and 2 Peter 1.21. Key, one, key verses there, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all scriptures God breathed. That is the key verse. 2 Peter 1.21. We'll look at these eventually. Point number four. Special revelation is progressive in nature. That means God doesn't dump it all at one time. He didn't dump the whole load on Adam or on Noah or on Abraham or on Moses. It's given incrementally. Even in the New Testament, Paul was given only a special body of information. He didn't know it all. Peter was re- God revealed other things to Peter that he didn't reveal to Paul. God revealed a lot of things to Paul that Peter found hard to understand, Peter said. Uh, God revealed other things to John. So revelation is, is progressive. And, then it, and that indicates there's a time when it's all finished. And that's what 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 13 
clearly indicates. We probably won't get there till next time, but uh, I have to go through that to, to finalize this. So we learn from this that special rest revelation is verbal. It's not just ideas or concepts. It's just not like, oh, God just put something into my head. It's specific. It's precise. We'll see a good example of that in a few minutes. It's not just ideas or concepts. This is why Jesus said that no jot or tittle will pass away until he comes back. Every word is important. This is what is called propositional revelation. Propositional revelation. God reveals with words and sentences and statements. Some passages, Exodus 19.6, God said to Moses, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. See, it's the words that are important. These are the words of the covenant, Deuteronomy 29.1. Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete, Deuteronomy 31.24. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the scroll and the words which Baruch had written at the dictation of Jeremiah, saying, Take again another scroll and write on it all the former words, exactly the same thing, that were on the first scroll which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, burned. Uh, Galatians 1, 11, and 12, the gospel which was preached by me, Paul said, is, is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, the precise content of the gospel. It's not just some idea that's put there. It's not just some concept. It is the precision of the gospel. Deuteronomy 13, 1, we get into the criterion. This is the sixth point. The fourth point was special revelations progressive in nature. The fifth point is special revelation is verbal, it's precise, it's propositional. Sixth point, God gives us tests to validate. Now remember in verse 1 we're talking about Old Testament uh, prophecy. So we're going to look at the Old Testament tests for how you knew when God spoke. Somebody came along and said, well, God spoke to me last night. You better have, uh, you better have some validation or you are going to be dead that it was a capital crime to claim that God spoke to you if he had not. And there were specific tests given in the Old Testament. The first, one, the first series of tests is given in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder. So here God recognizes that there will be false prophets who will perform miracles. Jesus says the same thing later on in Matthew. He says, it will be those who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name and we heal people in your name. And the Lord will say, depart from me because I never knew you. So there are those who are going to have miracles, real miracles. But that's not the issue. Verse 2, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass. See, it's legitimate. It, it really happens. So-and-so really got healed. They had cancer and they got healed. That doesn't validate the so-called prophet. And the sign of the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods. See, what's important is the content of the message. That's where you validate it. Is it theologically correct? Is it doctrinally consistent with the rest of Scripture? So if a prophet comes to you, raises people from the dead, heals people, performs all these miracles and says, well, let's go worship this other God, then the doctrinal content of his message is what invalidates his claim to divine revelation. Verse 3, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. God allows this to happen to see if you're really going to follow His Word precisely, if you really believe in its sufficiency and its completeness. That's what it's all about. If you run off after people who say, God spoke to me and told me to do this, or God gave me this prophecy about you, God allows that to happen to see if you're going to stick with the Bible, or if you're going to run off after somebody who claims that God has spoken to them. It's a test of the doctrine in your soul. It's a test to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Verse 4, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and hold 
fast to him. Now, there's a great illustration of this test and its operation in 1 Kings chapter 14. So let's turn over there. I want you to go to these verses. I should have had you go to Deuteronomy 13. You should go there. Mark those verses. We'll go back to Deuteronomy 18 as well. Let's go there. Before we go to 1 Kings 14, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 18, 20 to 22. This is the second great test. We'll keep these in mind when we go to 1 Corinthians First uh, Kings 13, excuse me. Deuteronomy 18.20, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name comes along and says, God spoke to me. The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. See, this is legislation. This is what God put into the Mosaic Law. If anybody comes along and says, God told, told me to say X and it doesn't pass the test, then they're to die. See, it was a test of 100%. Not that they were 99.9% right, but they were always right. If they weren't, then they were to be put to death. Why? Because they are claiming to utter words that come from God. They are claiming to represent God. And if they're saying something that's false, then it will mislead people in their spiritual life. That's how important... God sees this. That's the significance of this. And we treat it lightly. That's why I say that if somebody comes along today and says, God spoke to me, let's look at how that word is used in Scripture. That word is used in Scripture to indicate a very high level of divine revelation and authority. And if you just claim, well, God spoke to me last night in a dream, you better be able to back it up because you're making uh, uh, some pretty significant claims. Verse 21, and if you say in your heart, how shall we know that the word which the Lord, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? They see, this is what we ask. We hear people all the time. You have all kinds of uh, people who come along and say, well, God told us this. Well, how do you know? Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. They were to put him to death. Okay, let's see the illustration. Go to 1 Kings 14. Now let me set the stage, or 1 Kings 13. Let me set the stage here because actually we're going to deal with the, the, the prelude to this on Sunday night when we're, in, when we're in Revelation. The situation takes place after the death of Solomon. The, the kingdom was united first under, under Saul, and then he was succeeded by David, and then David was succeeded by his son Solomon. Solomon was succeeded by his young son Rehoboam, and Rehoboam is just a fool. And God, because of, of Solomon's disobedience and taking the Israelites into idolatry, and because of all of his sin, God told Solomon that he was going to take the kingdom away from him, but so that he would be faithful to the Davidic covenant... One tribe, or actually two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin would remain faithful to the house of David in the south, but there would be another kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, in the north. And that was prophesied in chapter 12. And what happens is that there's a tax revolt, one of the first known tax revolt, successful tax revolts in history, and Rehoboam is going to increase what are already egregious taxes on all the, on all the Jews. And the ten tribes say, we're not going to put up with it. We're out of here. You're not our king anymore. We're going to have a new king. And they appoint Jeroboam the first, Jeroboam the son of Nebat, as their king. And Jeroboam recognizes that he's got to unify the kingdom, and it won't happen if he's sending everybody down south to Jerusalem. So he does four things. He establishes a, a, um, a new, two new centers for worship that are in competition with the temple in Jerusalem. One is in Bethel, and that's the center of action for our story tonight. One is in Bethel in the south, just before you get into Judah, and the other is going to be up north in Dan. The second thing that he did was he established uh, these uh, idols of these calves, golden calves, as idols at these worship centers, so he substitutes uh, a false god. The third thing he does is he establishes a new priest class. 
He gets rid of the Levites as a priest and takes priests from all the other nations, so he has a new priesthood. The fourth thing he does is he redoes the ritual calendar of Israel. So he's just he's brilliant in the way he he works to restructure everything. It's much like what the what the what they did in the French Revolution, redoing the calendar and getting rid of the Bible and all these other things. So he's he's a master at understanding what had to take place. Well, God's just not going to let that happen. So God sends a prophet to him, starting in verse one of chapter thirteen, and this is one of the most bizarre stories that you'll ever read about in the Bible. A man of God goes from Judah to Bethel. Bethel, remember, is where they have the, the, the high place established, the special altar in the south. This is in 1 Kings 13.1. He goes by the word of the Lord. God has commanded him to go and confront Jeroboam. Verse 2. Jeroboam has made himself like a priest. He's imitating David, and he's going to act like he's a priest. And he is performing sacrifices at the altar at Bethel. And so the uh, prophet comes to him and makes a prophetic announcement. He says in verse 2, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. So what he says is, number one, notice the precision. This isn't just some idea that was in his head. This is precise communication from God. It's going to involve a child king. Second, the child king is going to be named Josiah. Third, he's going to be in the house of David, so he's going to come from the south. Fourth, he's going to sacrifice priests on the high places. And fifth, he's going to burn men's bones on the high places. Now, this event takes place at the beginning of Jeroboam I's reign, which is roughly 931 B.C. 931 B.C. Josiah becomes a king as a child... And when he reaches his teenage years, he fulfills the prophecies fulfilled through him in 640 B.C., 300 years later. And that is found in 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 15. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made, both that altar and the high place he broke down, he being Josiah, he broke down, and he burned the high place and crushed it to powder and burned the wooden image. As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain, and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed. See, that's the fulfillment 300 years later. He burns bones on the altar. And then if you skip down to verse 20, we read, He executed all the priests of the high places which were there on the altars and burned men's bones on them, and he returned to Jerusalem. So you see the precision of the prophecy, and 300 years later, the precision of the fulfillment. But see, nobody who was alive during the reign of Jeroboam I in 940 was around 300 years later. So how would they know that this man of God whose name is not given, how would they know that he was a genuine prophet? He gives an immediate sign, and this is given in verse 3. He gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. Right now, in order to confirm the long-range prophecy, the altar is going to split, the ashes are going to all fall down, and everything's going to fall apart right here. And as he said that, Jeroboam reached out and pointed at him with the magisterial hand of the king, and this is always a symbol of the king's authority, and he's about to tell the guards to haul this guy off, and God withers his arm right on the spot. And it just withers up and is paralyzed, and he can't move it. You can imagine how scared to death Jeroboam was at that particular point. The altar, we're told in verse 5, was split apart. And he knows that, that this man is from God. It's authenticated by what has happened. Then the king pleads for, that his hand would be restored. So he said, please entreat the favor of the Lord your God. Not the Lord my God, but the Lord your God, that he will... Restore my hand. So the man of God prayed to the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him. And then look at the next thing in verse 7. The king says to him, 
Let's go home and have a banquet together. Come home and, and I'll take care of you. I'm, I'm so grateful. Let me show my gratitude. I'm going to take you home. We'll have a great big banquet. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll enjoy a good time of fellowship. And uh, the man of God said to the king, verse 8, If you were to give me half of your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread, nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. In other words, God specifically instructed me that after I give you the message, I go straight home, and I don't stop, and I don't eat with anybody. I just go home. And so he does that. He goes home. Now we go to scene 2, verse 11. There's an old prophet, which means at one time he'd been a legitimate prophet, but he's compromised. He's living in Bethel, so he's compromised with the ecumenical system that Jeroboam has put in place. And his sons come, and, he tell, and they tell him of everything that's happened. And he says, well, where'd this guy go? And he said, well, he's headed south to Judah. So he says, okay, saddle up the, saddle up the donkey, and I'll go find him. And so he goes down, and he finds the man of God in verse 14, sitting under an oak, taking a break. And he the old prophet says, come home with me and eat bread. Let's go home and talk a little bit. We're a couple of theologians here. Let's have some good fellowship. And the man of God said, I cannot return with you. Neither, neither can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place, for I have been told by the word of the Lord, verse 17, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there nor return by going the way you came. And listen to what the old prophet said. Now, this is, this is the issue. The old prophet says, I'm a prophet of the Lord. An angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord and said, Bring him back with you to your house that he may eat with me. See, what's happened is God told him, Don't eat. And now this false prophet comes along and says, No, no, an angel came to me. He says, Okay, you come and eat. And, and the Holy Spirit notes he was lying to him. See, it's a test to see if that young prophet is going to be faithful to the Word of God alone or if he's going to be swayed by somebody who claims to have a message from God. And what happens? He fails the test. He goes back, he eats bread in his house and drinks water, and as it happened, the Word of the Lord comes to the old prophet. probably shocked him. He hadn't heard from God in a long time. Now he's going to make a legitimate prophecy. The word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back, and he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying in verse 21, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread, and drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. You're going to die because you disobeyed me and you went after a false prophet. That's how seriously God took it. But he's making an object lesson for Jeroboam. Because if the prophet had been disobedient and gone and eaten, eaten with the prophet and nothing had happened, no consequences, then Jeroboam would have thought, well, maybe I'm going to get away with everything. So God is going to make a profound object lesson by taking the life of this young prophet. So he leaves, he saddles up his donkey, and he heads on south. And in verse 24, a lion attacks him, kills him, and the lion stops and sits down right next to the body, right next to the donkey. Now, is that what a normal lion's going to do? No, that lion's going to have dinner on the body, and he's going to follow it up with dessert on the donkey. But this is to show that this is a miraculous event from the hand of God to make an object lesson out of this prophet who has failed to apply the test of Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 to this message. And men went by and they saw what had happened. The word got back to the old prophet. And so in verse 26 and following, he, he goes down and he finds the, the man and he brings him back. Verse 29, the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, brought it back, and buried him in his own grave. Why? Because he understood that this prophet was a true, great prophet of God who had had one failure. And that's why the old prophet wanted to be buried in his grave, because he wanted some, in death, he wanted blessing by association. See, that was a pagan idea that slipped in. We've already seen this guy's compromise with paganism 
with the gods at Bethel. So you see how this slips in. He's thinking that even when he's dead, he wants to get a little of the, the extra blessing from this genuine prophet. But the point of this is to illustrate the reality of Deuteronomy 18 and Deuteronomy 13, is that when people say that God has spoken to them, how do you know? Well, there were objectifiable tests in, in the Old Testament. You couldn't just claim that such and such was a message from God. See, that's what happened in paganism. And they had all kinds of people running around saying, well, God spoke to them. And sometimes you had uh, <clears throat> demons that spoke through people. And you had things of that nature that happened. But it always involved different acts of, of mysticism. Let me wrap up. I've got a couple of quotes here. They're a little lengthy. They're from Lewis Berry Chafer's Systematic Theology. And Chafer does what a lot of people do, is they try to use mysticism to refer to illegitimate activities and also the inner subjective ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. There's a number of good, good studies that have been done in the last 20 years. You just can't do it. The word mysticism comes from the Greek word mysterion, which had to do with the mystery religions. And it is inherently a concept that is juxtaposed to the methodology God used in Scripture. About false mysticism, Chafer says that the theory that divine revelation is not limited to the written word of God, but that God bestows added truth to souls that are sufficiently quickened by the Spirit of God to receive it. Mystics of this class contend that by self-effacement, going out and living in the desert, giving up food and water, by uh, devotion to God, individuals may attain to immediate, direct, and conscious realization of the person presence of God. See, that's that chain of being. If you just find the right formula, you'll, you'll get that special connection to God who's just one rung up the, up the ladder. False mysticism, he goes on to say, includes all those systems which teach identity between God and human life. Pantheism, that's that chain of being. Theosophy and Greek philosophy. In it are included practically all the holiness movements of the day, also spiritism, Seventh-day Adventism, New Thought Metaphysics, which is the foundation of the modern health and wealth movement, uh, Benny Hinn, a lot of the uh, 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 televangelists are, are just soaked in that, and there's lengthy studies demonstrating this. Christian science, Swedenborgianism, Mormonism, and Millennial Dawnism. The founders and promoters of many of these cults make claims to special revelation from God upon which their system is built. So how do you know they're right or wrong? You have to see if it stacks up to the doctrine in the Scripture. With far less complication, with error and untruth, a false mysticism is discernible in the beliefs and practices of the Friends and Quakers. He goes on to say a few things about them. And then he contrasts that to what he calls true mysticism, which was what is later more clearly defined as what I talked about earlier as illumination and the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's not the same thing. They're categorically different when you study them. So it's really poor methodology to use mysticism to apply to anything in the Christian life. The Bible never uses the word in that way. One last quote. There's a great study that was done by Leon Wood, who was an Old Testament professor at a Baptist Bible College up in Grand Rapids, wrote a number of excellent commentaries, studies in Israel, did a tremendous study years ago on ecstatics and prophecy. And in that study he writes, quote, In ecstatic frenzy, the subject seeks to withdraw his mind from conscious participation in the world so that it may be open to the reception of the divine word. To achieve this ecstatic state, and ecstatics is the modus operandi of mystics, to achieve this ecstatic state, poisonous gas may be employed. That's what happened. There was some kind of gas emission at the uh, Oracle of Delphi. A rhythmic dance or even narcotics. The desire is to lose all rational contact with the world and so make possible a rapport with the spirit realm. He goes on to make an excellent analysis to what happens in the Old Testament. He said, already before Israel's conquest of Palestine, Moses calls himself a prophet and states that a prophet like himself would arise after him. Now, most people take that as a primary reference to Christ. Moses is a prophet like me is going to come up after me. That's the key thing. He goes, Wood goes on to write, He uses the singular Navi for prophet in reference to this one. 
and so is correctly taken to mean Christ is the supreme prophet thus to arise. But the context shows that he has reference in a secondary sense also to other prophets that generally should appear in later history. Here's the punchline. Moses himself was not an ecstatic. God says, I don't speak to you like I did to other prophets. I speak to you face to face. It's not ecstatics. Hence, Wood concludes, if prophets were to follow Moses, were to be like him, neither would they be ecstatics. If Moses wasn't a mystic, no other prophets would be mystics. Moses doesn't operate on mysticism. Therefore, no other prophet, because all the other prophets would be like him. Further in the same passage, Moses warns that the people specifically against following revelational practices of surrounding nations, stating that in contrast, God's word through these prophets would be the approved way for revelation in Israel. This means that ecstatic frenzy, which was practiced by surrounding nations, was officially disallowed, and that would be applied to, to uh, mysticism as well. Well, that's as far as we can get this evening in our, in our study as we just begin to crack the door on, on divine revelation and how do you know how God speaks. Next time we're going to deal more with the New Testament revelation and how do we know that, that the New Testament canon has closed, how do we know that certain spiritual gifts that were revelatory, such as the uh, word of knowledge or uh, prophecy, how do we know that they have ceased? How do we know that they're no longer functional in operation? It's very clear if you study the Scriptures, but the problem is most people just don't crack the book enough. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time this evening. Thank you for a great understanding of what it means that you have spoken to us and what a profound a statement that is, and what a tremendous statement that is, and how uh, unusual and unique it is that you have spoken and given us uh, an inerrant and infallible word that we can rely on, one that is sufficient, and this is part of your tremendous grace towards us. May we not take this lightly. May we recognize that the most important thing that we can give ourselves to in life is to know your word and make it a part of our life that we can learn to think like you think about all the issues of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.